Hi everyone, Drew Perot here with the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you for joining us again. I think you're going to love today's episode. Happy New Year, by the way. So many people, when they're thinking about their New Year's goals, think about movement and bringing in physical fitness into their life. And we all know that movement is important to the brain. We've had practitioners in the past who join us on the podcast like Dr. Liz Boehm and other individuals like Max Lugavera who've talked about this concept. But how do we more deeply integrate movement into our life as a whole? That's what this podcast is about today with Katie Bowman, biomechanist and author who's leading a movement to bring nutritious movement into our lifestyle. Why nutritious? Well, that's what we go into into this podcast with Katie today. She talks about how movement is just as important to us as our diet and just the way that we would want to have a varied diet with a lot of different colors of the rainbow. As Deanna Minnick has taught us in past podcasts, we want to have different types of movements. We don't want to be just going to the gym doing the same type of movement. We want to enable our body to step into all the little nooks and crannies and places. Why? Because it has a major impact on our health. I think you're going to dig today's podcast. It's a different take on movement. It's a different take on the idea of what human beings were designed and how we were designed to move in our life. So hope you enjoy the podcast. And as always, thank you again for tuning in. It means the world to us. Dr. Hyman, myself, our entire team, we're super happy about how well the podcast has been received by you all. If you've enjoyed it, consider leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. And if you want to say hi, I've been enjoying the folks that have gone on Instagram and reached out to me. You can find me at D-H-R-U-P-U-R-O-H-I-T, Drew Perowit. Send me a DM. I respond to them all. I've said hi to a bunch of folks. I've even got some amazing testimonials from folks listening to this podcast. Super inspiring. Love, love, love hearing your story. Okay, now into my formal introduction for Katie Bowman for today's podcast. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, help you feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is Katie Bowman. As an internationally recognized biomechanist, author, and science communicator, Katie Bowman has both the skill and passion for reintroducing movement into people's everyday lives. With her best-selling books, award-winning podcasts called Move Your DNA with over 3 million downloads, live and online classes, Katie teaches hundreds of thousands of people every month how to move their body. Katie regularly travels the globe to lead workshops and retreats and is frequently featured on television shows, including NBC's Today and in major magazines, including prevention and good housekeeping. Katie directs and teaches at the Nutritious Movement Center Northwest in Washington State, consults on movement-rich community and educational space design, and spends as much as time possible moving outside with her husband and children. Katie, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you for having me, Drew. It's an honor. I want to read back a quote of yours and have you expand on it a little bit for our audience. So the quote says, your cells respond to nutritious movement the way they respond to a healthy diet. Help us unpack that. Well, you know, I use 
the nutritious paradigm, because I think more people are familiar, they've spent more time learning about macronutrients and micronutrients and what constitutes air quotes, like around a healthy diet or nourishing diet. We understand what vitamins and minerals are. We understand what fats, proteins, and carbohydrates are. Most people, certainly probably most people listening to this show. So I use nutritious movement to capitalize on the fact that we've already broken down a phenomenon, a natural phenomenon like eating to recognize, oh, there's actually types of foods that I need. It's not only calories. You can't be well if you only meet your caloric requirement, which they thought hundreds of years ago. So yeah, hundreds of years ago. I mean, you know, we all learn about vitamins and minerals in elementary school. And it seems so um, simple, but it really represents hundreds of years of scientific breakdown of, of pockets of people being unwell and recognizing that when they were missing a particular compound, there was certain ailments that would express. So all nutrients are discovered in hindsight. They're discovered when they're, they're actually named. They're named a nutrient when there's a predictable set of symptoms that come from an absence of a compound. And when that compound, introducing that compound, makes those symptoms go away. That's what a nutrient is. So I advocate for movement to be thought of in the same way because movement really does work really just like nutrition does. So a nutritious diet is not made of the same two or three foods, even if those foods are good, right? Like you could have kale and oranges. Both of those are foods with nutrients. Like they have nutrients that we need and often supplement with, but you can't live on them exclusively because they're not in balance with other macro and micro nutrients. And so we need this wide variety of foods because we need to get both of our macro and our micronutrients in order. So similarly, when you move your body, you're really just moving the cells within your body, right? Yes, you are one body, but you're a body fashioned by trillions of smaller bodies. So if you did 10,000 or even 1,000 bicep curls, that area of your body is nourished by that movement, but other areas are not. So similarly, movement needs to be distributed over your body to nourish your entire body. And I think that that idea kind of probably resonates with most people in the idea of or the term of cross training. So if you're a runner, it's common for people who are running to express maybe an injury. And the injury stems from either them only running, so only moving the parts of their body that are moved or used for creating the mechanical levers of running, or it could be the way that you're running. So if you go to a physio or physical therapist here in the U.S., they're going to give you exercises to nourish or move areas that you are not using when you're running. So that could just be related to the form, like poor form. And they'll be like, hey, move your move your knees in, move your feet in, lean your torso back or forward. And what they're doing is they're adjusting which parts of you are moving when you move. Um, but also a good coach would tell you that you can't only run. That's why your back's bothering you or why your shoulders are so tight. Because yes, you are taking, you're getting the nutrition from the running, but running really needs to be done in a context of lots of other movements. So you need to lift some weights, you need to be stretching because your current movement diet is not nourishing all of you. So it'd be maybe you're eating only, you know, only a protein or only fat or only carbohydrates. Like that would be the diet 
analogy, or it could be even smaller. You're only consuming vitamin D. There's no other nutrients happening here. And so a nutrient can also be very detrimental to the body when taken in excess or when taken in absence of other nutrients. So nutritious movement is just this idea that like dietary nutrients, there's a need for movement all over your body, that movement works as food input does. And also that there is a distribution, right? So we've identified nutrients, but that does not mean that we need all nutrients in the, exactly the same quantities. There is a distribution, a relationship between nutrients that we're going for, and the same is for movement. So it's not only that you're moving all the parts of your body, it's how much and and how often and in what relationship to other movements. I love that because you know you have all these series of distinctions that are built into nutritious movement because at first sight, people can hear this and say, okay, I get it. Movement is important. Exercise is important. So what's the point? But this is so much deeper than that traditional approach. And in fact, one of the distinctions that you often share with your work is that just because you're active doesn't mean that you're having a nutritious diet, a nutritious, rich movement diet. So let's take, for example, you in your explainer video around on your website, which is beautiful, and we'll make sure our team links to it in the show notes. One of the things you talk about is that when you look at people who are not active, a sedentary lifestyle, and you look at people who traditionally exercise a lot, they actually are very similar in their total amount of movement. Can you help explain that a little bit well, more? Well, yeah. So, you know, if you exercise regularly, I mean, if you get an hour a day, you're already an outlier as far as maybe the population within the United States. Many people don't exercise regularly, but if you exercise every single day for an hour, that's quite a feat. That is some really great habits that you've got there. But mathematically, if you break it down, it's still only 4% of your day spent moving. So zero to 4% is not that much when you divide it by all time of the day. And so that's why we don't really see if you're in the exercising group, you're obviously not sedentary. But then there was a lot of research that came out and it has been still coming out of this idea like that sitting is the new smoking. That was the headlines for it. But it was really within it was the idea that sitting so much and like we're talking like eight to 12 hours a day of sitting, the detrimental effects of sitting eight to 12 hours a day can't be exercised off that there's risks to your physiology from doing so. And the risks don't really diminish whether you get that hour or not. And so if you're one of those hour workers, it just feels like blasphemy. It's like, but I'm, I'm doing the thing, I'm doing the movement. It's like, I know. But when we do it mathematically, your cells were only moving 4% of their life. And when we add a little bit of cross-cultural data, which are other humans that don't live in the way that we live, that are still modern humans that are on the planet right now who have way better disease markers than we do, the diet has always been what's been focused on. But at the same time, there's also abundant, all-day, diverse movement. And so there's kind of been a shift to adding this new category. So there's sedentary, there's actively sedentary, which would be regular exercisers who otherwise live in a sedentary culture. And then there's active, you know, truly active mathematically, meaning they're moving hundreds of minutes 
per day, not exercise per se, but they're moving just to accomplish the daily needs and necessities of life. So we all know what sedentary looks like. We are getting the idea and piecing the components together of what active sedentary looks like. You can be just like anybody else and you drive you know, on your commute to work and you sit in the office chair, you get up a little bit to stretch here and there, then you go to the gym, then you go home and you sit, and then you sit down and you watch TV. And that'd be the person in, as one example, in the active sedentary. So paint a picture for us of this active lifestyle. You know, are those people around the world and obviously yourself and other individuals who are embracing in this movement of nutritious movement, what is their life and day and week look like? Well, it's interesting because I would say that active as a category, again, would probably be like population that's most active would be modern hunter-gatherer populations. So um, still somewhat nomadic, meaning lots of walking, you know, three to five miles daily and then larger bouts of 20 miles regularly dispersed through a month, but also not furniture, like furniture free populations. If you take away your car and you take away your house, there's just so much movement, gathering things, hauling your water, building the things that you need, looking for tools, foraging for food all throughout the day. And then when you get that food, whether you're growing it or finding it, turning natural items into things that are edible actually takes quite a bit of work. Humans have lasted as long as they have because they're quite resourceful in finding parts of nature that are edible, but a lot of them require like not only the gathering, but the pounding and the drying and the hauling. So just a ton of food processing related movements. And then of course, everything that you own comes with you wherever you go. And that goes for children, right? They're in your arms, they're on your body. There's no strollers. You never walk with your hands empty. Your arms are always laden. Your body is always laden with what you need to survive moment to moment. So it really is lots of like, I think in terms of geometry, I'm a biomechanist, so math comes easy to me. So I think in terms of shape, like if you were to assign your body a constellation by putting a star at every one of your joints, movement is really just a shift in that constellation. So if you sit in a chair every day, you can imagine what the constellation would be. And it's not that different from your driving in your car constellation, right? You're sitting at work, you're driving in a car, you're home watching TV. It's all the same constellation. There's no change in position of those joints. But if you look at hunter-gatherer populations, you're just going to see that their one body assumes so many shapes throughout the day. And then those shapes are usually under some external load. So just you changing your shapes, your body's like humans are heavy, human, like full grown humans are heavy. So every time you change a shape, you're effectively lifting the parts of you in different ways. So as that so that could be like bending yeah. down and squatting and squatting and up. coming back up, bending over at the waist and coming back up, reaching over your head, maybe hauling yourself up into a tree. We're used to thinking about them in terms of exercises. But if you think of them in terms of geometry, change in shape, you moving through the natural world, like if you even compare walking on a treadmill to walking through a forest without a trail, those same acts of walking are completely different in terms of geometry. Because when there's nothing underfoot and everything that you walk on is kind of unnaturally been leveled for you, your knees and hips and your feet and ankles, they don't have to 
change shape very much to have you walking. But when you are stepping over rocks, when you are having to shift slightly to the right or to the left, bend under a branch, now the act of walking from point A to point B uses so many more shapes. So it's really just a distribution of shapes throughout the day. And I, the reason I said that, so like that's technically active when I was originally like parsing them up. But we also have people who work quite intensely throughout the day. I grew up in a farming community and there was many people laboring in the strawberry fields where I grew up. Now, like these populations were out there before dawn and they were out there as the sun went down. So they too fall into an active category, but the diversity of their movements was very low. And so that's why that nutritious movement is really key because it's not only movement that we need to ramp up in terms of high volume. That diversity also needs to be there. If you're moving for 10 hours a day, but you're only bending over and over doing the same motion of your shoulders and your spine, that too is detrimental. That's like taking one food. That's like eating applesauce only, right? Applesauce is a great nourishing food, (laughs) but you're going to be quite ill if you lived on an applesauce diet for a year. So it's really just recognizing that movement is just as nuanced as food. And for those who are really struggling with their physicality, you've got this whole other paradigm to explore about, wow, I, maybe I haven't not only been not moving enough, but not diversifying that movement over my body. I love the nutrition analogy because it really helps people put it into the forefront in a way that they can understand, mm-hmm. uh, especially because there's so many beliefs about exercise and other components that we have that we have to sort of unpack a little bit, disassemble, and then create this new framework. So continuing along the analogy, in our Broken Brain docuseries and on this podcast, we talk about a lot of different things. But continuing on the food analogy, people know that when you don't eat and have a diet rich in plant foods and the right proteins and other stuff, and you're eating junk food, you are getting maybe more inflammation. And when that inflammation is there, it can lead to all these different issues and diseases. When you have nutrient depletion that's there, it leads to X, Y, and Z. And we've covered a lot of that in the series. So help us to understand the problem here, like really understanding the problem, because I think people are listening and they're like, okay, great. I get the idea. It's great. It's a nice to have in there, but I don't often know if people know the full extent of the problem. So what's the problem that we're seeing in our modern day society when we are deficient in a movement rich diet? Well, I think it's actually pretty challenging for most people to see because you would have to first acknowledge almost complete whole body sedentarism. So I don't even think that it is well understood right now what the ramifications are of this totally unprecedented sedentary group of humans will experience because there's nothing really to compare it to. So we are really in movement where we were with nutrition maybe 500, 700 years ago. So think about them discovering vitamin C. The fact that there was these prisoners and these um, pockets of people who had kind of um, a different outlying diet, the fact that these tissues were just breaking down in these populations no one had even thought, well, I don't know if no one thought, but in the general idea, like the fact that that would just be related, this tremendous amount of disease 
and suffering from those diseases as being related to just a lack of one type of food or one nutrient, I think wouldn't even make sense. It makes sense to us now, again, because of the time and because of the massive public education outreach. But I think that a large percentage of what we experience physically is relating to total sedentarism. Like I, in evolutionary biology, there's this idea of a mismatch that we're not eating the right foods. We're under lights all the time. Like there's these really big ideas that your biology is really adapted and has evolved to a particular set of conditions that it still requires because the conditions have just, relatively speaking, just changed overnight. And our body is not dealing with this new environment very well. I kind of liken it more to like, we're kind of more in a zoo, the way a wild animal would behave in a zoo. And there's a lot of illnesses that arise in animals that are in zoos because the habitat is just so completely different for that animal. So, I mean, I would put almost anything people physically experience right now across the board, things that are really, really large, like cardiovascular diseases, musculoskeletal conditions, um, general malaise, mental health, like all of these things to really look at. There's, we've talked a lot about diet and I've seen things, you know, people talk about night lighting and I've seen people really latch on to these ideas of going, yes, I hadn't thought that I needed fresh air. I didn't know that I needed to go outside. Vitamin nature, right? Like there's a whole group of people researching the idea that humans actually need nature to be well on a most fundamental or basic level. Movement is still not really brought into the conversation. It's still talked about as exercise. Like, let's get our exercise. But that's why I'm a proponent for nutritious movement, because I'm like, I think we're really missing out that many ailments of these humans right now that are in our culture might be related to the fact that they're entirely mismatched to their movement environment. Because most people, even if they're not eating well, they're not eating that nutritious diet, they've still been eating where not only have we been not moving well, we haven't even been moving, if that makes sense. Like every single person listening to this has probably eaten multiple times every single day of the life. They might be readjusting their foods right now for small symptoms or large symptoms. But most people listening to this have been sedentary almost every single hour of almost every single day of their life. So volume-wise, looking at your, you know, air quotes around movement diet might be the place that's holding so much of the solution to what's ailing them. You talked about mental health. Let's just chat about that for a second. What are you seeing in your work and in your research uh, with this being the Broken Brain Podcast? We focus on mental health, obviously from so many different components, from diet to environmental toxins, to gut brain connection, to deficiency in nutrients, to psychotherapy, addressing trauma. We've talked about the importance of movement from a component of creating BDNF in the brain and these feel-good sort of uh, components. But take it down to you know another level with the work that you've done. How is our mental health effective by not having deeply nutritious movement in our life? Well, I don't know. But I've been on the panel for some Alzheimer's foundations. And so I'm interested always in the research that comes up as far as um, brain health goes as it relates to movement. So right now, it really seems like the best possible thing that you can do for your brain 
is exercise, is to move more than you're moving right now. That while everything else is kind of seems, you know, not quite 100% sure yet, it seems pretty clear that exercise is a great way to maintain brain function and also brain mass. Now, what's interesting for my particular work, which is to really break down for people the difference between exercise and movement, which I know you and I will probably get to um, later on in the show, is that when you think about needing exercise versus movement nutrients, many movements are not currently under the umbrella of exercise. Um, We just have this idea that any exercise is good. And then certainly any exercise is better than no exercise. But that's also like saying that eating a Snickers bar is better than not eating any food at all. But Snickers can nourish parts of you, but it can also over time not nourish many parts of you. And so exercise is kind of like that. It's like trying to get something, but you're not necessarily getting the wholeness of what you could be getting if you ate a different way. So with brain health particularly, there's a couple of things that have come out in the last few years. And I spoke on the panel and was talking about why the need for classification movement versus exercise is so necessary. So we don't think of like when I'm talking sedentary culture, I'm not only talking that you're not running, jumping, carrying, walking five miles a day. We're at the point right now where we don't even have to chew our food. So if you think of your jaw and all the musculature in the face and the idea that for eons, humans have had to masticate their food, they have found that just the act of chewing, the muscular act of chewing is part of the circulatory system of the brain. So the way that the body works is it's got a lot of simultaneous functions. So for example, you have a heart and it's pumping your blood around, but to assist the heart is all of your skeletal muscles. So your heart and your skeletal muscles together circulate your blood. Only because we don't move very much, we see our circulatory system as exclusively belonging to the heart. And so the heart is sitting there working and picking up the slack of our musculoskeletal system because we spend so much time not moving. We also have a lymphatic system that runs alongside our cardiovascular system. The lymphatic system does not have the smooth muscular walls that produce force in the same way that your cardiovascular system does. So they're both tubes, but you've got more muscle force production in your cardiovascular tubes and you do your lymphatic tubes. The lymphatic tubes are almost primarily driven. The movement of your lymph through the body is almost primarily driven through action. So when you don't move your body, you basically have a lymphatic system that doesn't work because it's packaged with your moving system. Humans are moving creatures. So we have been creating a culture, creating a society where we outsource almost all of our movement, but movement is a part of a working human body. And so that's really important when we think about the brain is like the brain's operating systems depend on whole body movement. So when you're not moving and changing position, it's kind of like having a part missing to your working brain. Like if you look at a television set, 
part of a working television set is electricity. So if it's unplugged, it's not going to be working. So imagine how often we are unplugged for movement and how that would express in the TV doing its job. It would just basically be sitting there inert a large portion of the time. So chewing is one of those things where I don't think that we can separate chewing our food from the human experience because the brain needs it as a working part. And then another one of those kind of along those same lines is another way that the brain is fully circulated is through impact. So they have found that part of what drives blood to the brain is the impact of your feet on the ground. Now, why that makes a difference is because if you were to choose between swimming and cycling and walking as an exercise program, two of those don't have as much impact as walking. And so you could be meeting your fitness guidelines or your need for exercise, but not your need for impact movement, nutrition, and thus your brain would not be having all of its working parts, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And there's so much that you covered there and, and I want to come back to it, but even the idea of, you know, people choose often cycling or swimming because they're like, oh, I want to go for a low impact workout, but is the problem the impact or is the problem the shoes? And I know you've written a lot about that and I want to talk about that later on, but I want to mention a couple of things. Uh, you were talking about chewing and how one thing impacts everything and how chewing is so important for brain health. We also had Dr. Stephen Lin on the podcast, who's a functional medicine, who practices functional dentistry. And one of the things that he saw progressing on the work of uh, not recalling his name. It'll come to me in a second. But in his work and, and uh, building on the careers of a lot of people who um, have talked about this previously, he saw that when kids are eating a diet of just like chicken nuggets, they can just take two bites and not have to chew the whole thing and just swallow. It affects the structure of the teeth, which affects our breathing. And you have all these mouth breathers and they haven't formulated their tongue to snap to the top, which could later on lead to sleep apnea, We can, which can lead to anxiety. So it's kind of just following on this idea that even though we think of it as like, oh, well, we're just eating processed foods. It's fine. You know, that's whatever. But it has so many other impacts, brain health, sleep apnea, the construction of it, and you're equating movement in that same category. We think that, you know, it's only impacting one thing, but if you're not turning into these different shapes and not bringing in this movement and just being quote unquote exercising versus movement. If you're doing exercise and just doing one rhythm on a constant basis, who even knows if we know all the different ways that, and all the implications that can happen to our body as a result of having that uh, deficient movement in our lifestyle. We don't know, and we are really at the dawn of even starting to consider. So this is the scientific process. It takes a long time. But there are many pieces that have already fallen into place enough, I think, for us to start talking about the need for movement locally, meaning like lots of different areas throughout our body that all moving parts need movement versus us having a need for exercise. Can we talk about uh, the feet as one example and all moving parts having movement? You know, there's the classic sort of term of, listen, just go for a walk every day. If you can just walk for 20 minutes. And I think that that kind of had a lot of steam up until maybe a few years ago. And then it was like, okay, just sweat. And of course, these are all things that are great and they're all things to bring in. But let's talk about walking and people often equate that to 
movement and it'll be one of the go-to recommendations. Okay, you can't exercise. Let's just start with uh, walking. Help us understand how even though you think you're moving, how you may not be moving all parts of your body. You know, you gave that analogy of being in nature and, and you know, it's not the same as being walking on a treadmill, but, you know, you've also talked about it in the context of like our feet. So w- what are different ways that even if we might be taking a step forward, we are not moving all parts of our body of the feet, just as one example to help our listeners wrap their mind around this. So I think we have this idea that our body is in either a state of moving or not. So definitely we've classified active and sedentary to be whole body states. But the idea of movement as nutrition or the idea that you can be active in some parts but not active in in other parts is really key to understand. And so where we do this every single day is if you – were to look at the skeleton of a foot, you'll see that there's a tremendous number of joints within each foot, 33 joints in each foot, which is a lot of moving parts. But we have developed a society, and then that means not just the behavior, but the structures of the society, right? So it's not that these aren't necessary items at this point, but that we have, we've kind of coated everything with hard surfaces and unsafe kind of detritus. And so we now wrap our 66 joints in stiff materials so that we can still take our whole body from point A to point B. So many parts of your body are moving as you walk from point A to point B, but the 66 joints inside your shoes, especially if if you picked up your shoes and you tried to bend it or twist it and it didn't move at all, then that means all of the moving parts within the shoe are also not moving. So shoe choice, footwear choice, footwear environment of the foot, however you want to think about it, is one way that we have sort of casted multiple parts of our body so that you could be a runner, you could even walk 10 miles a day, some of your body. But the other parts of your body stayed completely sedentary on the couch as far as they were concerned while you took that walk. So it's this idea of local sedentarism, the fact that there are areas within your body that are sedentary even when you are moving. And the longer those pockets, those areas of your body have been unmoving, the more, like if you just kicked your shoes off right now, if you hear this, you're like, that's it, shoes are in the trash. And then I'm going to go walk on the gravel in my driveway. The parts of you that haven't moved for decades are so stiff that when you step on anything, the sensation is so great that you can't really even do it. You need lots of transitioning exercises to kind of start mindfully, carefully breaking up those 33 joints that have kind of clumped together to be one, one hunk. And so there's almost like taking off a cast and it's exactly like taking, I mean, you have casted your feet. Almost everyone listening to this has casted their feet pretty much since birth. And then all of our structures, the way that we use our ankles and our knees, the rotation of our shank, the shape of our bones, the distribution of our muscle mass, the ranges of motion that we have in our hips and our toes and our ankles and our knees all relate back to that original kind of innocuous thing of, of of course, everyone wears shoes, don't they? Only they don't. Only they don't. And they almost never have, with the exception of maybe really flexible foot coverings, 
shoes are a completely brand new thing to humans. And I, and I am delineating between what we consider to be shoes now and putting a little bit of, you know, deer leather or around your feet or wool as some sort of way to keep warmth or reduce the risk of being um, punctured by things. They certainly made it easier. And that's been going on for, I'm sure, 10, 12, maybe even 15,000 years. But again, on the human timeline, still fairly new and always with a tremendous amount of other moving. And then now we've just got, I mean, we've got steel toed boots and we've got (laughs) boots with plastic and rubber that are so stiff that they don't even move. And certainly in some cases, you know, steel toed boot is going to be, if you're on a construction site, it could be a foot saver, but we just assign these shoes to children, you know, who are just forming their skeletons as they're running around. And the first thing they get, you know, to be, you know, good parents is like something really stiff and unmovable. And then the rest of their skeleton adjusts. So, um, yeah, we've all got a lot of work to do on our feet. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, people are imagining their life as you're talking. (laughs) They're thinking about all the different times that they're sitting or stuck or doing stuff and living in the modern world. And let's talk about just the concept of sitting. Of course, in the office space, you know, there was a few years ago that standing desks became very, at least the idea of them became much more known where previously, and that goes to the whole concept of sitting as the new smoking and a lot of that sort of data that was there. Help us understand like when people who are listening, they might even be listening to this at work. They might be uh, sitting down and getting some work done and working on the computer and the idea of ergonomics is is out there and people are thinking about that. But what are ways that, that we can still do the things that we need to do in modern society, first starting with work, and then we'll get to other aspects and still keep this component of being truly active? It's interesting. Work takes up more percentage of our time than anything else, usually more than family, usually more than like things that you really, really enjoy doing, friends, et cetera. So work is usually where people ask about first. But I would say that the easier place to start is probably before and after work, where you um, have full kind of sovereignty over that time. And so are you driving right up to your spot where you park and then walk in and sit down? Can you restructure your wake time so that you can actually start the day with even 10 or 15 minutes of outside movement, walking around, um, and then right after work, if you can do that as well, some, as a, some sort of transition. And then also, are you spending your weekends and your vacations moving, right? So I always say start observing the part that are is the most malleable and don't start necessarily with the part that's least malleable because I think that that's a strategy for staying sedentary. I think that's a strategy for convincing yourself that there's no possible way for this to apply to you. So look at all that time first. But then once you are at work, so I wrote a whole book on it called Don't Just Sit There because I do feel like there is this idea that productivity, and that's the output of whatever, whether you're working on a computer, writing, standing, you that you have to be in one place to be productive. And for you to be in that one place, you have to be still why you're in one place. So like we're recording this right now. I am at my desk, but I'm standing next to it. And I actually have a small ball, one that I'm rolling my foot with and the other one that I'm 
kind of rolling between my hands. So I'm in place and I'm being productive, but I would say that my constellation, my body constellation is shifting right now, more so than if I set up my productive area to be in the same shape. So I'm a big advocate of something called a dynamic workspace. And that would be if you have that ability that you have a way to easily shift between at least two positions. So a lot of times this requires, you know, big expensive, you don't need to go out and buy a $5,000 desk with buttons that lifts and lowers. You don't have to do that. It could be if you have a laptop, you can move it from a desk to a high table, or sometimes you can even just stand up while you're reading your email. You know, you're, you can still be at your desk. You don't necessarily even have to change the surface that your computer's on. You just have to change the configuration of your body. If you're in a chair, is your body constellation the same constellation in this chair or can you tuck one leg up behind you? Can you adjust where your pelvis is? Can you adjust where your head is, where your shoulders are? And and you almost certainly always can be moving some part of you while you are also in the place that you are needing to be and being productive. So if you take phone calls, use that opportunity as a time to stand up. If you have a little bit more freedom in your workday, if you work for yourself or if you've got a great office culture, you can save up your phone calls and go take a walk and do them outside. And I do this a lot and I do a lot of I do a lot of professional calls. I just always sort of have this preemptive, I'm trying to stay moving while doing lots of work. So I'm going to be moving outside while we're on this conversation. So if you hear any noise, that's what's happening. And we're all in this same sedentary boat together. And I think that it's completely appropriate given the data on sedentary behavior and not only physicality, but in the workforce, like the fact that your workforce production goes down in terms of sick days and times out for being ill because they're not moving to almost think of it as a great company strategy that you're moving. So I, I do that quite a bit. So in general, it's just that. It's it's just learning how to position your body differently given the situation that you already have. Um, and then standing up more often through the day and then just taking, I mean, if you could just get up and do, I think that they found if every 20 to 30 minutes you did a two mile an hour walk for two and a half minutes, it was enough to trickle down to the arterial movement, your artery movement. So just setting a timer. There's so many apps now that you can put on your computer that give you a reminder. They actually shut your window down and they put up a little time's up go walk for two minutes and you can set the frequency of that. And it's just a reminder to get you out of kind of that black hole. Like you sit down and you go into the black hole of work and then you emerge (laughs) bleary eyed eight hours later, you know, a walking lunch. And people wonder why they're tired or exhausted or have nothing to give to their loved one or their family. The parts of life that you want to be doing more in, right? Like we just give it all. And so, and then even how you get dressed, like I, I won't say famous for saying, I'm probably notorious for saying like there's active wear, right? So I'm talking clothing, there's active wear. And then there's basically by naming it active wear, you just have to kind of acknowledge that non-active wear is basically sedentary wear. They're clothes that you have to put on to look professional or they're the clothes that you wear when you're not moving, which is most of the time. And you can't move in them, meaning they physically restrict 
your waist, right? Your trunk motion is limited by the fact that you've got a belt around it. You've got tight waistbands. You have shoulders that don't allow your arms to go overhead where you can't even, every time you walk through a doorway, just reach your arms up and touch the top of the doorway. And you'll find that we put on basically gear onto our body that actually physically prevents it from moving. And now that goes from the shoes all the way up to your jacket. So I would say that for those that are looking to move more, just changing your footwear and your clothing a little bit. And this is, it's been a big deal. People have kind of understood this idea of, you know, there became, there was athletic wear and then there was like, I don't know, it's like athleisure, athleisure wear, right? So it's, it gives you the same freedom and mobility of your body parts when you're not necessarily exercising, but you're hanging out. And then I've started to see so many companies. I just saw Athleta, which is a a women's exercise company, come up with an entire line of clothes that give, meaning clothes that allow you to move, that are cut for professionals. So you can actually wear it to an office. So you can still meet the need to look a certain way and your body's need to move a certain way. Incredible. On, On the topic of shoes, because we mentioned it previously and you mentioned Athleta, what are the ones that are out there that you like that have a range of potential designs? And of course, a big part of this is even just kicking off the shoes and walking yeah. barefoot and being in the grass. But when we do need to wear shoes and we don't want to put on a traditional Nike cast or something else out there, what do you? what's your go-to? Well, so I maintain a list of minimal shoes, companies that I like and styles that I like on my website because it's it's always changing. As this has become a new category in the last 10 to 12 years, companies are always emerging. And usually shoe companies, shoe companies usually make a certain type of shoe, right? So sandal companies make sandals, running shoe companies make running shoes. So there's not really one company that is making a full line of shoes for all of your needs, right? You need something sort of professional or dress, and then you need to dress casual, athletic, sandals. And so in general, it's probably more helpful to quickly go over what makes a minimal shoe. So minimal shoe is not necessarily the mass of it. So a minimal shoe is not that it's that it weighs less or doesn't have that much material to it. It really means that it's minimally impacting your movement in various ways. And so there's four or five ways I evaluate this. The first one, and you can grab your favorite pair of shoes. You can grab the pair of shoes that you're wearing right now and you can look at them to give them the test. So the first thing is you want to pick up your shoe and you want to bend it toe to heel and then you want to twist it along its long axis. So like you would hold the toes and the heel and then rotate that in opposition. And what you're looking for is how easily it moves. So the bulk of my shoes I can pick up and to squash the front of my hand to the back of my hand. And then I have ones that if I just lightly rotate, they really flex and give. And then obviously there's different shoes for different things. Like if I'm going backpacking, I'm over a lot of terrain for many miles, like 10 or 20 miles, I'm going to pick something that's a little stiffer because I've been wearing shoes my whole life. But if I'm going to go on a 10 and 20 mile walk without 50 extra pounds, I'll go for a thinner or more twist. So there's not really a right or wrong minimal shoe. It's just you have to consider the activity you're doing in your shoe and your body's needs, how well your feet move, how much conditioning to barefoot. I actually don't recommend that people just suddenly go barefoot. There's a training program that you can take yourself through that will make sure that 
the tissues of your body that have adapted to basically wearing a cast. Like you wouldn't pop off a arm cast and do a cartwheel. Like you just, you really have to be mindful that tendons and fascia and bone and nerves and muscle have all adapted to a lack of movement. And you need a pretty rigorous training program to start loading even your foot under your body weight in an unshod situation. Cause it's going to be for the first time that that's ever felt your weight. So there's flexible sole. Then if you try to spread your toes away from each other, and it helps if you take your hands and you spread your fingers, they kind of, they widen out so that your pinky finger and your thumb finger move away from each other. Creating a little like, um, just expanding them out and and spreading them out. It's like, if you were going to put your handprints in cement, you probably wouldn't have your fingers all together, right? You'd starfish them out. You'd make them as wide as possible and then put your handprints in. Your feet do this. Your feet's ability to do this is what gives you such great balance ability, the ability to grab onto things with your toes, what makes you such a great climber in a lot of different situations, unless you've never used those your feet in those ways. So your toes abduct or spread like this. But if you were to trace your foot, and you can do this too, you can do it with your family, it's kind of fun. If you were to trace your foot with your toes spread, that is if you can spread your toes. If not, put your hands down there and pull them apart a little bit. You might feel them stretch. Trace your foot and then put your shoe over your foot tracing. It is very common to see that the width of your toe box, which is the front of your shoe where your toes go, is actually more narrow than your toes are when they're spread, meaning you don't even have the ability to use your feet in the full range of motion. So you want to pick shoes with a wider toe box, shoes that aren't casting or pushing your toes together. So that's the second one, flexible sole, wide toe box. And then there's something called the upper. So there's the sole of the foot and then there's all the material of an upper. And the upper of a shoe is what connects your foot to the shoe. So if you have ever worn a flip-flop, you know, you slide your foot in and the upper is just kind of the V-shaped straps that go on the top. But those alone, those straps are not enough to keep the foot connected to the shoe. So when you put on a flip-flop, you have to tense your toes and grip it. So you're using your climbing tensing muscles there, you have to grip them and tense them all the time to keep that shoe on. And they've found that that gripping action affects your gait. It affects the shape of the nerves and the tissues and the ligaments of your feet. There's something a lot of people deal with called hammer toes where the toes kind of curl and they don't stop. They can't get out of the curling position because they've been doing it with every single step for miles and miles and miles. So you want to look for a full upper and that's a any style that doesn't require that you have to tense or grip with your foot to keep your shoe on. So that's any sort of slide on shoe in most cases, right? Anything that your foot easily goes into makes it also easy to be kicked off when you walk. So you have to add this kind of chronic tension in your feet. You add even more stiffness. And then the last one is heel. And the heel rise, that would be how much the heel is higher than the toes, right? So if you imagine you're walking downhill, that's a scenario where your heel comes over your toes. But we almost put, we almost all put on shoes every single day that's like perpetual downhill motion for your feet. And it's in kids' shoes, it's it's ubiquitous. I mean, unless you've gone out of your way to pick a minimal shoe, 
almost every single shoe has got a, it's called a positive heel or a rise to it. And a lot of shoes, obviously for women, an extreme. Exactly. Right. And there's a range, right? So there's a range of a little bit, a quarter inch to five inches. But I think that, um, people who will pick kind of a traditional man style think that they're out of the heel range, but most trainers, which are athletic shoes have an inch and a half to two inches. It's just styled so that you don't, they're not a thin pokey thing on the back, but the rise is significant. And so then a calf stretch would be the opposite way of downhill, right? It's your feet going uphill. So our ankles have really lost that ability to go uphill well, because they've spent almost every single step in their life, whether they are walking and taking actual steps or just even if you're sitting in your chair in your positive heeled shoes, your feet are going downhill. And your calves, your calf muscles, they you'll go through your Achilles tendon, that's the thick ropey thing on the back of the ankle, your calves, they actually attach to the bottom of the thigh bone. They pass behind the knee. So for everyone really concerned with the state of their knees, which again is everyone almost, exercisers to non-exercisers, like you can take fitness people and total kind of sedentary. I don't do any sort of exercise besides channel surfing. Those knee replacements are still becoming more and more prevalent. And if you, if you look at the calf shortening exercises of sitting in a chair, right? Bending your knee shortens your calves. So does pointing your toes. We have spent almost our entire life in a constellation that places the knee joint under so much tension when you go to stand up. So that would be the other thing to look for would be if you've been wearing a high heel your whole life, obviously you're going to come down gradually because you've adapted in terms of length. And and it's not only to change your shoes, it's really about changing the frequency of your sitting. And again, like I said, doing all those corrective exercises to kind of kind of give a, a movement nutrition infusion into the feet and the ankles and the knees and the hips before swapping because you can in your intensity to do good to your body, end up creating, you know, a little bit of damage or micro damage there just by progressing too quickly. It'd be like going from couch potato to trying to run five miles in the first day. Your body's not ready to do it. You have to do gradual loads. And that goes for um, coming out of shoes as well. For a lot of people, there's so much history of sedentariness and growing up with maybe even parents that didn't move and not knowing better. I mean, kids know better. They naturally play. They do all these things. They do dynamic movements. They're very, they lean naturally towards flipping and jumping and they want to not wear their shoes. They want to kick them off. And then we sort of get brought into society and we become vanilla and we act like everybody else. So a lot of people have this sort of like deep history of being sedentary. And there's plenty of amazing things that in your books and things that they can do on their own, but one of the things that we're a big proponent of is is community. For a lot of people, sometimes that even eating healthy, it's tough to do on their own. It's great to do in community. So what are your tips and recommendations for people who are listening to this and are like, I want to do this. I'm a little scared to do it by myself. I'm not exactly sure. You know, What are ways? Are there movement classes out there? Is it as simple as you just grabbing a friend or grabbing your kids and going and doing it? How can we do this and make it more sustainable in our lives? Well, I am a big I'm a big fan of community as well because community is part of that natural structure. You know, if we we could say that community is a nutrient. I actually call it vitamin community because again, this is also just just like this is the first time humans have eaten like this. This is the first time humans have moved like this and this is the first time humans have been sort of 
community less. And I mean, like we have our small dwellings, you know, in our home and our nuclear family, but traditionally there was always multiple families, multiple generations of people shared space. And almost kind of, I think of it as like a kind of behave like as bees do there, you know, which are kind of considered not to be individual animals, but kind of a super organism where all the bees together as a collective are doing the task of the hive. And so I think that you could say that there's a human phenomenon where humans have always done quite a bit of movement and eating, you know, nutritiously, because that's where these ideas come from. They come from the intact natural ecosystems where humans are participating. And so community, I really think is key. So I talk a lot about something um, called Stack Your Life. Stack Your Life comes from permaculture movements, which is kind of, it's a, I don't want to say it's like an evolution from industrial farming. It's really more kind of the roots of farming. So things have always grown, but they've always grown, um, like edible foods have always grown, but they've grown over distances, right? And we had to move through distances to get the nutrients that we needed. And thus movement and food have always been in a deep relationship. The reason you move is so that you can eat and then you eat so that you can continue to move so that you can continue to eat. That's a natural relationship between those two things. But our particular culture created something that is now kind of expressed as modern farming. And that was like, what if we could bring the nutrients to one location and we wouldn't have to move in the same way. We'll get them to come here. Like if you talk about anthropology, sedentary population would be the um, opposite to like a nomadic population. So traditional hunter gatherers migrated just like lots of other animals migrate over distances because that's the only way they can eat. That's their foraging strategy because you can deplete an area that there's nothing left. You have to move to find the next thing. And you, by you moving on, then what you ate regenerates. And then when you come back to it in a year or two years, it's there for you again. You don't just sit down and eat through the same field over and over again because you deplete it quickly. So that's what's kind of happened with farming is that we've just kind of depleted certain areas. And so there's been farmers who've branched off and we still need to grow things for the way our society works. But the way of growing them where you kind of pull everything living out and you plant only the one crop that you're going to have, then what you do is you get a ton of like one nutrient, right? It's kind of the same way that we exercise. We've gotten rid of all the movements and then we just pick one thing, cycling, one thing, running, one thing, yeah, like Pilates. Monocropping. It's a monocrop of movement. Yeah. So we've got a monocrop of movement. And interestingly enough, we have a monocrop of diet. So movement and diet might still be in that deep relationship. I believe that they are. That's what my book, Movement Matters, is about, is I think as we've monocropped our food and are struggling nutrition-wise to figure out how not to only meet our personal needs, but the needs of the larger ecosystem, that's suffering too. Like nothing is really being nourished by the monocrop approach that we look and we're like, oh, and we also have a monocrop of movement. The monocrop is really sedentarism, but then we're trying to grow these pockets of like lots of one type of movement. So permaculture is this idea of, hey, when nature... I'm just kind of making something up. Like when nature was growing, let's say an apple tree, it would be by these other trees and these other trees that weren't apples. But when they dropped their leaves, that would 
kind of pack around the bottom of the apple tree and it would keep it wet, right? So Because no one's watering it. There's no people there to do the watering. Watering is something that doesn't exist yet. But water falls from the sky and is absorbed by the leaves that are on the ground and the fact that all the trees around it are participating and decaying and, and then giving their nutrients to the ground, which is fertilizer, which we now have to bring in, having it harvested by something else. And then we drive it into bringing it in because there's nothing else living there except the one crop that we want to do. So permaculturalists are saying there are orders to natural systems that include diversity. And they've figured out like, oh, well, if you have an apple tree, maybe don't rake it clean just because you like to have it look looking clean. Maybe you can put some fennel around the tree because the nutrients that are in fennel are also the nutrients that the apple tree needs, right? So there's like these relationships that they've figured out that certain foods, certain plants will fix the nitrogen while certain plants will take it away. So if you only have plants that remove the nitrogen, that area will be deplete pretty soon. So they've figured out how to stack. They figured out that you don't need to water if you let other trees rot and fall. When they rot and fall, don't haul them away so that your yard looks nicer. Break them down, spread them around. Guess what? Nothing might grow there for a little while, but the soil will heal. The microorganisms will come back. They'll do their job. And then over time, you get something that's more nourished. So efficiency and nourishment is something that happens over time. It doesn't necessarily pan out minute to minute based on the expectation that we have. This is a long answer to your question, but I'm getting there, which is the idea of community. So I imagine that for many people, what keeps us from moving more is we don't, one, we, we don't even realize that we've gotten rid of the movement from our life. Like we don't even realize that every day we consciously are looking for the most convenient thing because convenience is always framed in terms of saves time. It's never framed in terms of what it also is or what it really is, which is saves movement. And the reason it doesn't save time is because you still have the physical need for movement. So if you have organized your life where you can jump in your car and drive to work and then jump in your car to drive to the store to buy food that other people grew for you and then not only grew for you, but maybe chopped up into small pieces so that you don't even have to use your elbows and wrists to chop it. They peeled it. They chopped it. So now you can just drive home and You don't even have to build a fire. You don't even have to go get water. It's all been brought to right to this tiny space where no movement is required. And then you get your dietary nutrients, but none of the mechanical ones. So now you have to go to another place to where you can walk on a machine that someone else built. Maybe you have to go to physical therapy to learn tiny rotating movements of the elbows and wrists to fix the fact that your arm has never had to really do very much of it. You're basically doing the same motion of chopping your own vegetables, only now you have to do them in a, in a therapeutic setting because they weren't in your parents' life and they're not in your life and you don't even know that they're something that, that all of our ancestors have done, again, for millennia. And it's just that. So the way that we can start making this doable can start as simply as thinking about your own food preparation. How do you move with your family? Where can you find, I started, I always recommend like, first of all, find a walking buddy. We can all walk more. 
And at first, it's some, it's finding someone who is in your neighborhood, someone in your family who wants to walk with you. I walk with my kids a few times a week, really early in the morning. That's part of our nature time. That's part of our family bonding time. It's not just like get up and go and quick. We all have to ah, run to our stuff. It's more like let's get up an hour early. Let's grab our breakfast and let's go walk out and watch the sunrise. Right. So that's something that I do with other people because we don't move because one, we don't know where it fits into life. And two, it's not anything that we've done with anyone else, right? Exercise is a, such a personal thing. It's about you doing this thing that just nourishes your own body. And we've never thought about the idea that all of life's necessities were once on the backbone of movement. Getting your food, whether it was gathering it, hunting it, preparing it, required movement. It was all done on the spine of movement. Tending your children, carrying them, entertaining them, being with them, educating them, all on the spine of movement. They just go where you go. Their play is the kid version of the tasks that they would need to do as they got older. They didn't need to dig, but they'll be out in the garden with you anyway because it's fun and it's fascinating. They might run off for a little bit and they come back to being able to do it. Your time with multi-generational people, you know, a lot of times older populations could watch the younger populations and similarly the younger populations infuse movement into the older populations. So it's like a natural training program when you pair those two, but everyone could be outside kind of moving together at the same time. So it's really, my biggest solution is to stack the natural functions of movement as much as possible. And that goes, find movement opportunities in your own home. And that is like kitchen, the way that you move through your own space, the way that you design your own space, looking for ways that maybe you've reduced the movement by, I always have people calculate their chair to butt ratio of their home. Like how many butts live in your house and how many seats are in your house? <laughs> and then people will be like, we have a two butts to 30 seat ratio. And then there's a whole other area of research that is about the influence of environment. It's in movement ecology. It's this idea that the shape of your space is influencing your particular shape. So not sitting on the couch is one of my kind of easy to do's. Now, this does not mean that you have to walk around not sitting. It means that when you need to take a seat, change up your constellation by sitting on the floor. Or if that feels, if you're too stiff to do that because you've been sitting in your chair for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, then put a cushion on the couch. And what you'll see is that your knees and hips and ankles travel a greater distance than when they were on the couch. They're traveling a distance in exactly the same way. That is that corrective exercise that is in that class that you don't have time to go to because you worked all day and you don't want to give up your only kind of non-working hour to go work out. So it's about finding ways to nourish your body that also nourish your soul, that also nourish the other areas of your life. And I think that Framing movement as exercise has led us to believe that the only way that we get to take care of our bodies is by doing this kind of unnatural thing of going out and just moving really in one particular way to make sure that we could check that off rather than going, no, there's a lot of life experiences that can be easily packaged with movement 
that nourish more than just your body in that moment. They nourish relationships. They can nourish dietarily, right? If you're going out and you're gardening or you're picking your own food, or if you decide instead of buying like the pre-chopped plastic bag of walnuts this holiday season that you go buy whole walnuts and invite your friends over to sit on the floor and crack them or sit out in the yard and crack them with rocks, right? And then the kids can get involved. People with lower mobility can all be involved. And now you have a moment, like now you have a tradition, you have a ceremony, or, you know, you can just do hammer curls, right? It's like, it's just really seeing that exercise and the way we do it is like comparing a pill from a supplement jar to the whole food or a meal of whole foods that they originally came from. So stack your life is this idea of increasing the nutrient density of a moment in your life. And you've actually turned it into a movement. If you're on Instagram, in addition to following Katie, definitely look at the hashtag because you can see really great examples. And I think that when I was first researching you and your work, that was really helpful to me because I've been familiar with some of these dynamic movements and examples. But even when I went on the hashtag, I'm like, wow, this is how these, this is how somebody's incorporating into their life. And this is this person's version of it. And that when you see these examples, it becomes so much more real. I think that's a good way, you know, in our modern world, that's a great way, like our website and our social media platforms, I'm trying to leverage the social power of it all. So I post the way I stack my life because it maybe doesn't occur to people that that's possible, right? Like we're so influenced by what we see, the behaviors that we see and we really only feel comfortable moving in areas that are pretty normalized, like you said, vanilla, but just that idea that movement is counterculture right now. I think we need to get comfortable with this idea that movement is counterculture. And one of the reasons we don't do it is because when you're the person standing in your doctor's office waiting room, because you've been sitting all day and you want to stretch your hips, you're the outlier you're the wacko, you know, like you seem like you're doing something wrong. And everyone's like, would you just like to sit down? Could you sit down? You're making me nervous. Sit down. So when you see on social media, we use like really, we use furniture free, stack your life. You start to see like, oh, there are actual, there's people who are doing this. They're pioneering it or they're reclaiming it because it's, you know, it's not anything new. It's actually something very, very old it kind of normalizes it in your mind space. Even if your neighbor is not doing it, someone else somewhere is doing it, that you can just start to feel a little bit more relaxed, that you're not going to be kicked out of a culture for doing it. Because that cultural, us wanting to stay attached to it is so strong. I think that's one of the reasons social change is so hard is because you don't want to be the, you don't want to be standing alone, right? Like there's kind of safety in numbers. So I try to use social media in that way to show like, there's a lot of people doing it. And there's a lot of people in the world not doing it, even if there's not a lot of people, you know, in the United States or North America doing it. Yeah. And I, it takes that. It takes a movement. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, in the 1600s in England, um, people were getting so many sewage because we didn't really fully understand sewage was creeping into the wells, it was creeping into the rivers. And so there was a whole movement of people just getting sick. So they said, okay, let's, you know, alcohol is safe. And people would drink alcohol. They would literally give alcohol to babies. They were not drinking as much water because they thought this is a better way to get in the liquid that we all need. So all day long, people are walking around drunk, 
crazy enough, it was actually coffee and the process of brewing coffee and making coffee that ended up kind of getting people off alcohol. But it's like, we just thought that's what we were doing. That's what was normal. We were drinking alcohol and we just thought this is the way to function. And I imagine us looking back on this time period and this experiment, you said it so well, just a massive experiment and realizing that we just didn't know any better. And we had spent hundreds of years building this society that really suppressed our movement and our diet. They're all linked together, which had so many implications. And now we're looking for, so glad that we got out of it. And you know, you're one of the pioneers in that space. And I just want to thank you for all the incredible work that you're doing to put this out there and share with people and show a different possibility that's so obvious, but we're all like fish in water when we're like, what is she talking about water? (laughs) Right? Like, what is she talking about? Um, Tell us a little bit more about where people can find you and all the great work that you're doing. And I know you have a podcast as well. I'd love to give a shout out to that. And maybe an episode that you'd recommend listeners of our podcast Mm -hmm. could go and check out and we'll make sure to link to it. My website's Nutritious Movement. Pretty easy. Um, Instagram is a big... I, I use Instagram as a teaching platform, as a modeling platform. So there's not a lot of gratuitous posting there. It's almost all a lesson, two or three takeaways, either visually or text wise. And that's also nutritious movement. Um, the podcast is named after my kind of biggest book with these ideas, which is Move Your DNA. So it's a Move Your DNA podcast. As far as podcast episodes, you know what? They're just maybe the most interesting, my favorite episode. I have two. Can I do two? Absolutely. You can do as many as you want. Well, I'm going to do two because I think it's, I've had a lot of um, evolution on my podcast. Like sometimes it's all listener questions. I don't have like a really solid format because, because I'm dynamic and the way that I like to teach, (laughs) like I think of my podcast as really as a set from start to finish rather than um, like, it's not really entertainment. It's more like this is you working your way through a set of encyclopedias. Like it's, it all works together. But I did a series of episodes on the way movement worked in a lifetime that wasn't necessarily related to exercise. And there was a podcast episode called Death Moves. And it was, it's episode 104. And it was talking about how we feel when we grieve um, and I, I talk about this on the show. I had lost my father, my brother, and my best friend all within a period of like three months. So there was like a big teacher of grief in this moment is that we have to look at that we grieve in a sedentary way where traditionally speaking, um, and even uh, across the animal kingdom, well, in certain animals, I don't know if it's across the animal kingdom, that movement is a metabolization of the cascade of hormones that come out in trauma. And so we have a lot of therapies now that are all about, you know, that are have movement elements. But the idea that we don't, as a culture, we don't really participate in the movements that go into someone after they die, the um, tending to the body, even the caring of the body. Like I've gone to a couple of funerals lately where instead of the pallbearers carrying it, which was kind of a remnant of a physical activity of grief, it was now on wheels and was being rolled out by the pallbearers. The wailing and like the vocalizations and the, you know, the waving of the arms and the dancing and all of these death ceremonies that you see in various human cultures that many of our ancestral practices had those, we don't have that. And so does grief stay with us 
longer because we've removed kind of one of the anatomy parts movement to the grief process. And so that was just a really great episode, I think, to hone in the idea of why movement is so, so, so much bigger than exercise. And then my other favorite episodes with Dr. Ihi Heke, who is Maori from New Zealand. And he, like from the Maori perspective, the cultural perspective is when they look at health, they do not place humans. You would not put yourself at the center of your diagram for your well-being. Rather, you are an extension, a tiny extension, an insignificant extension almost of your ecosystem. And so within where you live, you've got mountains that are millions of years older than you and forests and trees that are thousands of years older than you. So their ancestors are all of the living things there. And when the water isn't well and when the land isn't well, there's no possible way that you could ever be well. So the pursuance of wellness from the Maori perspective starts with an ecosystem and and in you tending to it, you become as well as all the other parts around you. So that is to my perspective is like we've really kind of pulled out humans as what gets to be most healthy. And then really we kind of pull ourselves out of the group of humans and saying like, we get to be the most healthy. And meanwhile, everything is kind of struggling around us, whether it's the ecosystem or your local community, maybe even your family. And to start to think of a more holistic perspective of how do we make all of this well together? And that's where the Stack Your Life comes into too, is you're you're tending multiple needs at once, which is not just time saving. So it means that you get more movement, which is one side effect, but it means that you are tending more of the fires of your life. And it's ultimately meaning that there's really only one fire of your life and all the things pass through it, your family, your community, your landscape, your physical health. It's just one fire. And when you can push them all together, then you you can put all of your focus into tending one fire and all of them are the better for it. That's so beautifully said. It goes back to our original start of the conversation of how it's all connected it's all together and it all impacts each other. And when you think of it that way, it's less of, I'm going to go work on my movement and my diet and this and that. We can integrate all these things at the same time. Katie, thank you so much for being part of our podcast. We'll make sure we link to that episode and all the great work that you're doing. You really helped us understand how to think of something. We kind of had to like take something that's so simple, go through all the layers so that we can unpack it. It sounds confusing, but it's not. It's actually then we make it simple again and we do it with people that we love. We really appreciate you doing that for us. Thank you, Drew. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.